I read comics, show number 42. sound in the background. Maybe you can't hear it. It's the sound of the electric heater that's pointed at my feet that's on full blast because it's the week before Christmas and it's really fucking cold in my house. Anyway, yeah, it's the week before Christmas. I don't know if I'm going to get out another show before Christmas, so maybe this is the Christmas episode. But since we'll call it the Christmas episode, um, first I want to say a big thank you to people who sent me gifts, because some people did send me gifts. I now am the proud owner of an Essendon Supporters t-shirt, which fits great, and I look great in it, so I'm really happy about that. Um, Thanks also to my friend Tony, who sent me some great books that was totally unexpected, and also sent me a whole bunch of CDs of Christmas songs, which are the most unbelievable Christmas compilations ever, and I can't stop listening to them. When somebody makes a Christmas compilation, and they include a range of artists like this, you know that they're a genius. So just on one disc, we have Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Prima, Art Carney, K-Star, Gene Autry, clips from A Charlie Brown Christmas, The Simpsons, The Mills Brothers, Thurl Ravenscroft, the voice of Tony the Tiger and uh, singer of the Grinch song, Stan Freeberg, Dick Sean. You know, I just remembered, I think I knew this and then I forgot, that Dick Sean, um, who was in the original Producers movie, one of my favorite actors, was the voice of the Snow Miser. Isn't that awesome? Um, Fiona Apple, Keb Moe, Donna Hathaway, Nancy Wilson, Julie London, Nat King Cole, Bing Crosby. And then he ends this disc with the track Happy New Year by Spike Jones and his City Slickers. It's so good. What a great compilation. So thanks for sending that along, Tony. Um, you should, If you could get the rights to all these songs, you could sell them and make a million dollars. And thanks also um, to Chris for the amazing Lost Girls book. It is a really beautiful thing, and I'm really, really happy to have it. So thank you. And um, thanks to everybody else who sent me stuff over the year. And, of course, a big thanks to David Arroyo, who had sent, like, it seems like 50 boxes of stuff when he was moving. And I'm still going through them. And the subject that I'm going to talk about later, V for Vendetta, is one of the books that he sent me. So thank you, thank you, thank you, everybody. It's been a a really good year. Um, So I want to do a couple of newsy sorts of things first, and then V for Vendetta is the big topic, and I just want to spend most of the podcast talking about that. So um, first, Byron, Carl Christian's Byron, now available through Slave Labor Graphics. And um, if you check the blog for the show, you'll see I put up the little video via YouTube that advertises it. And there should be a link directly to the page where you can get it from. And it's just so awesome that Slave Labor picked it up. So hooray, Byron for everyone. Go buy it. Um, I also, I think, mentioned this before, but I want to recommend it again. Um, the live journal group Scans Daily, which is scans underlined daily or underscore daily, which is a group, you know, it's a group that um, <laughs> their motto is, is bringing the crack, and it is comics crack. And a lot of it is very slash-oriented, but some of it isn't. It's just people posting things that they really enjoy or they want to share with other people. And just this past week, it was like karmic because um, somebody had posted uh, just about the whole 
issue um, when the Fantastic Four first encounter Galactus, and it's, you know, this incredible Kirby art. It's just amazing. Silver Surfer, Galactus, the Watcher, everything. It's, it's just, you know, typical Kirby when he was in his Fantastic Four groove, stuff jumping off the page at you. And I was like, wow, I haven't read this in so long. It's so cool. And just the day before, my sometimes co-host, Logan the Boy Wonder, was asking me about that very issue because he, following Fantastic Four now, he was like, "Why? what happened in the very first Galactus encounter? Like, did they beat him? Did he beat them up? How come he's still around? And I did my best to explain from sort of the dim memory that I had, but there it was, and I was able to send him the link and go, here, read it for yourself. So I know that um, some people probably aren't pleased with Scans Daily because people do sometimes scan a whole issue and post the links to the pictures at Photo Bucket or something. But for me, it's been a great way to keep up on things, new things that I haven't seen, to know what people are talking about for um, a run that I've never read, um, and to see really funny stuff because there's all kinds of Silver Age nuttiness and early 90s badness and of course the requisite ripping on Liefeld and Greg Land who is really coming in for a lot of um, shit from people lately really deservedly so because the more people are aware of his tracing from porn images the more they post stuff like that just to show that you know characters women especially the same characters have the same face in three or four different comic books when they're supposed to be different women. Somebody recently posted something that was not only porn face, but was porn body. And it was clearly taken from porn. You know, it was a woman sitting with her legs spread wide out and her eyes tightly shut and her mouth open in a, you know, fake orgasmic sort of thing. It's like, wow, that's really obscene and offensive. And he did it for, a, I don't even know who the woman was supposed to be, a superhero. So um, I, I can recommend Scans Daily. And if I had the time and energy to post stuff there, like to scan stuff in and post it, I probably would. So maybe someday. Maybe that'll be my goal for 2007. Start posting to Scans Daily. So um, a big, big push for that. Um, I also wanted to mention that I heard that the Skeptics calendar finally shipped. I wouldn't know because they didn't send me any, and I had to contact them to say, where the heck are my calendars? Uh, but I heard it was out, and I hope the picture looks good, and they got all my information right and all that. That would be nice. Um, and finally, let me just say that you should all be watching Christmas cartoons. The Cartoon Network has been doing a fabulous job of showing all kinds of really cool Christmas cartoons, old ones and new ones. They just showed The Grinch again the other night, and I watched it, and it was awesome. Um, showing new things that are really good, like um, Billy and Mandy Save Christmas and uh, the uh, Kids Next Door Christmas thing, which I just really like because the X-Men are in it, like a version of the X-Men are in it, and it's really pretty good. Nightcrawler is called Nutcracker. It, it's it's really pretty funny. And I notice um, in a lot of the new Christmas cartoons, there are a lot of references back to the classic ones that, that we as adults, I think, remember. Charlie Brown Christmas and, and Rudolph and Santa Claus is Coming to Town, which they're showing. So all of that stuff is on all the time. And, you know, for me, there can't be enough Christmas cartoons. I'd be watching them every day. So, yeah, go and watch those. Um, and on a very topical note, um, I saw, as everybody else did this particular week, the Star Sapphire's new outfit, which sucks, and it's offensive, and lots of people are writing letters, including me, to say that it sucks, and it's offensive. <sighs> so, you know, it continues. Um, I'll talk more about Minx next time. 
In fact, as a preview, the next show will have quite a bit of ranting in it, so you can look forward to that or not listen to it, depending on who you are. Um, but yeah, that's one of the things. And Minx, you know, as I think I mentioned before, the name sucks from my point of view. Uh, okay, wow, that was a lot just crammed into a few minutes. So let's take a little break. Let's listen to some more of that wonderful Ginger Mayerson music that I love so very much and a little other musical cue, and then we'll talk about V for Vendetta. about 20 years too late. Maybe that makes me fashionably late. I just thought about that. Well, the book I have here is the trade paperback of V for Vendetta, as I mentioned, from the Arroyo stash, the legendary Arroyo stash. And uh, I think this one came out in 1989, and it collected uh, all of the uh, V stuff that had been published previously, plus it has a little forward and a longer afterward, and some sketches, and it also has the um, little short story, Vincent, which was, uh, as they said, outside the chronology, but appeared in there anyway. So, once again, this was a book that I knew about, I had read, read about, and heard about, and of course I knew about the movie that came out, but I had never read it, despite knowing that it was Alan Moore, and that it was probably good, I just... It was not on my radar screen, and it was a time when I wasn't reading comics. So I was able to come to this completely fresh, knowing almost nothing about it, and uh, not really knowing even what the plot was about, sort of, but not really. And my exposure to the commercials for the movie and reading the reviews of the movie, you know, as we know, the movie is different. I haven't watched the movie yet, but I'm going to maybe next week, um, and I'll definitely talk about that. But the book ended up being something totally different. So I, I want to say that, um, first of all, it's great. The writing is great. Um, it's the typical stuff that Alan Moore does so well, which is to layer things in there and to put all kinds of really complicated symbolism and references and things that you don't notice until you go back and read it two or three times. And I think that is really the mark of a good comic or graphic novel is that you can go back and read it more than one time and enjoy it every time you read it. And that's what I've found with the other stuff that he's done that I really liked, like Watchmen and Top Ten, um, is that it, it really... Is still fresh when you go back and look at it. Um, I am sure that everybody who is listening has read V for Vendetta, or at least knows about it. Uh, but just to recap, 
It's set in the not-too-distant future in England, very English-centric story, and concerns um, one person who rebels against the totalitarian state, and that person is V. And it's the story of what he does to bring that down into anarchy and how he um, trains someone to follow in his footsteps after he's gone because he knows that'll be inevitable. So the thing that surprised me most of all was that it drew so heavily on 1984, which is a book that I've read several times. I, you know, I had to read it in high school for the first time, but I've read it a number of times since then. Um, and there is an awful lot of 1984 in here. Not that he stole it, just that it was a big uh, influence. The other thing that really struck me, and, and I was so pleased to see that I got this right, is that it draws, too, from um, one of Harlan Ellison's stories called Repent Harlequin Said the TikTok Man, which is almost this same sort of story, but with a very different um, approach, outlook, in this story, the way V has to take down the state is through violence, through killing people and blowing things up. In Ellison's story, um, the Harlequin, and there's a lot of similarities between the Harlequin and the Guy Fawkes character that's in here, um, does it through humor. Um, in, in Ellison's universe, in, in that story, everything is run um, by time. Everything is perfectly timed, and what he does is to disrupt the way things are synchronized by making people laugh and by getting them to stop thinking about how awful things are and just laughing and doing silly things just for the fun of it without purpose. And that doesn't bring down the state, but it starts it. And you see at the end of the story that it's definitely on its way to being disrupted. So um, I, I think it's a really interesting contrast between um, the ways that those authors think that the state can be um, dismantled one way using humor and the other way using violence and who knows which way is actually right we've seen violence certainly but i don't think we've seen a government taken down by humor maybe that's just ellison's dream of the way that it could happen in a non-violent way um so the Englishness of it, I think, is totally appropriate, although for Americans, I think there are some things that are hard to understand. And I think that's also why the 1984 resonance was so strong, because, again, an English story set in the framework of the English government and the way people are expected to behave. Um, now, I know things are pretty bad in our country, despite the Republicans just being voted out of office. I don't know that they could ever get to this particular state because Americans are something of a different animal than English people are, just because we're such a different mix, and also because the country is so big. It seems to me that this kind of totalitarian state has to be in a smaller place. Um, that's just my own personal opinion. Um, let me take a few moments to talk about the things I didn't like, um, just to kind of get it out of the way. So the first thing that I didn't like is the lettering. The lettering sucks. I can hardly read it in places. It really impeded my enjoyment of this because it took me a long time to figure out sometimes what the words were. And, you know, I, I don't want to get into a whole discussion of whether it's better to have the lettering done by hand or whether it's better if you do it on a computer. Obviously, this was all done by hand. But I really had a hard time reading it, and it was very, very frustrating. To add to that, there's a Scottish character in here, Alistair, or Ali as they call him, and his dialogue is sort of a written-down version of the way Scottish people talk. And to me, it was nearly incomprehensible. It just took me forever to figure out what the fuck he was saying. 
So I appreciate the attention to detail and the realism of that. And maybe for English people, it's a lot easier to, to pick that up. But it really made it hard going. Really, really hard going. So those two things I really hated. Um, I was really not that fond of the art. I think in some places it's perfectly appropriate and works really well. I love the way he's drawn V in his costume. I love his costume. I love the way his mask is drawn. I think his backgrounds, um, the street scenes and everything are, you know, photo, they're photorealistic and they look great. In fact, they very much remind me of, um, the way the movie Yellow Submarine was done. When you see those streets of London, it looks just like this, you know, it's like a photograph that has these dark drab colors and, you know, that's the whole setup for Yellow Submarine that the Beatles come and bring color to it. But I think that's wonderful and all the attention that's due to, um, that's paid in, in V's um, shadow gallery to the books and the posters and everything is, is awesome. It's really wonderful. Um, so aside from V, though, I think that um, the artist David Lloyd really sucks at drawing people. <laughs> So let me just get that out there. I had a hard time telling apart a lot of the male characters, especially the ones who are the government. Um, They all look the same to me. They're all a bunch of middle-aged English guys, and some of them are balding and some of them aren't. And it was really, really hard for me to tell them apart. And I think in some places they're very inconsistently drawn, where the faces just look different from one chapter to the next. His consistency seems to go from... I guess, issue to issue, the way it originally came out. But if you look at the characters in the first chapter and the same characters much later on, they look different. And it's really annoying. And he does much better when the characters are supposed to be um, somewhat different looking, um, that they have distinctive facial features. So um, even Eric Finch, who is one of our main characters, the, the investigator who's trying to find out who V is, Um, He has, because he's balding more than anybody else, you sort of recognize him from panel to panel. But uh, it was just such a hard time trying to look at these people. And the biggest complaint that I have is about the other main character, Evie, who is V's protege. She looks very distinctive in the first issue. Of course, she sort of has this makeup residue on from trying to... um, make a living as a hooker. But by the time we see her again, um, when she's in a different context, living with the gangster Gordon, she looks totally different. I didn't even know it was her. I looked at her and I'm like, who's this blonde woman? She looks really different. We haven't seen her before. Am I supposed to know who she is? And then of course, like reading along, I realized it was supposed to be Evie and it doesn't look anything like the way she was drawn before. So that screwed me up. And then later on, um, she goes through um, this whole torture thing that V puts her through, as we find out later, to break down all her defenses and make her understand what she needs to do um, in order to keep up what V has started. You know, he shaves off all her hair, whatever. We see her a couple scenes later when it starts to grow back, and her hair is sort of um, very, very short and kind of curly, kind of wavy. We've seen her hair has something of a wave in it. Then we go along to the next chapter where she's supposed to be working out on like a, um, a horse, like a gymnastics horse. And she now has a Dorothy Hamill haircut, which is really weird to me. And again, I was like, is that supposed to be Evie? She looks totally different to me. And I guess it is supposed to be her, but her hair looks completely different. And 
I was like, okay, is she wearing a wig? And why would you be wearing a wig if you were doing gymnastics anyway? That doesn't make any sense. And then in the chapter after that, she's back to the short and curly hair again. I was like, oh, come on, don't make this any harder for me than it already is to figure out who the hell these people are supposed to be. So that is just inexcusable, it seems to me, in a work of of this length and this exactitude in many other ways is to have one of the main characters change their look so radically from chapter to chapter. I think it's just a big mistake. So I, I really have to complain about that. Um, so there. <laughs> um, let's see. So that's the art. I just really don't like the art. Okay. Um, as far as the writing goes... Uh, there were so many things that I, I didn't really notice until I read some of the afterward. One of the things being that there are no sound effects in this whole book. And that just passed me right by. And of course, when I read that Alan Moore had specifically made this decision not to have any sound effects, I was like, whoa, that's really cool. I didn't even notice that that's, in th- that's not in there, that he just didn't put it in. And it's you don't miss it at all. It's great. Um, the other thing that I hadn't noticed, which he pointed out, was that he didn't want to have the characters have thought balloons. And once again, that went right by me. I didn't even notice that there were no thought balloons. So it's a huge credit to him as a writer that he managed to make so much clear through the dialogue um, or the exposition, which is sometimes V's narration or song lyrics. Um, That clip that I played at the beginning, which I'm going to play the whole song at the very end, is um, called This Vicious Cabaret, and it was done by David Jay, who was part of Love and Rockets, one of my favorite bands, um, and who was in Bauhaus before that. And I actually own a David Jay solo album. I'm probably one of three people in the United States who bought that record. I love David Jay. Um, And he had read this book and immediately wanted to do an adaptation of that song, which appears in one of the chapters. And um, it's kind of spooky. It's a very, um, you know, Berlinish, Kurt Weilish sort of song. And I I think he did a good job of capturing the flavor of what it should have been. Um, and, And that sort of thing as well, putting in, like, pages and pages of a song with lyrics and then images underneath that are meant to relate to the lyrics is just it's really wonderful you know it's the kind of thing that Moore does I think better than anybody else this juxtaposition of words and images to create the meaning and and that's what graphic novels and comic books are supposed to be about right that's what makes comic books a unique art form is that juxtaposition of the text and the image there isn't any other form that does it as well as a comic book does and that's why comic books can be so great you know, novels can't do it, and non-sequential art doesn't really do it. You know, most visual media don't do it. But when a comic book gets it right like that, the result is really amazing. So, yes, I, I love all that. Um, I got to thinking about the main characters. You know, there's a lot of um, talk about who V really is. And we know something about him that he was um, originally taken to one of the... Um, concentration camps, internment camps, and experimented on as were the other people there, and that he um, was injected with something that turned him slightly superhuman in a sort of Captain America-ish way, but maybe made him crazy at the same time. Maybe he was crazy to begin with, and that's why he was in there, and has somehow managed on his own to build this amazing shadow gallery that's just full of books and records that he's rescued and full of security cameras that monitor things and also has access to um, the computer that runs everything else. 
So who knows how he managed to do all that and whether he actually had any help or whether he did it on his own. So he's he's faceless and we never find out his identity. Um, Evie at the end decides not to find out who he is. So as he has said in the book, he isn't anyone. He's an idea. And you can't kill an idea if even if you kill the person. And I think that that's a very important part of this, that we don't find out who he is. And that in a way... Um, what he's done to Evie when he um, tortures her. And, and I use the word torture because that's the way it says it in the book. And what he does is, is more breaking down her barriers. I mean, he doesn't attach electrodes to her or anything like that. It's not the kind of torture that, oh, I don't know, we saw our government doing to people over in the Middle East, for example, or in Guantanamo Bay. Not that kind of torture. More kind of your standard 1984-type torture. Um, and, and he's helping her to give up her identity to become the next V. And so this got me thinking about one thing in particular. Um, so in the course of the story, he picks her off the streets because she's about to be raped and killed. And he is training her to do what he is doing, which is to destroy things. And he succeeds in, in the destruction part of it. And then her job is to sort of not bring order to the chaos, but to make sure that the order arises out of the chaos organically from what the people want as, as they want to govern themselves and not to have someone holding that power over them. And then she also picks up someone to train to help her or to work with her or to follow after her, I guess, if she gets killed. <clears throat> that person is Dominic, who was the assistant to Eric Finch. And we see through the book that Dominic is a pretty good guy. He's pretty smart, like he figures stuff out before anybody else. And who knows why she's decided that he's the guy. But I have my doubts about him. And this is why. When they talk about the people who were picked up to be in the internment camps, they, they specifically, Alan Moore specifies that it was non-white people. So it was Asian people and um, Indian people, like from India and Pakistan, and black people, of course, and gay people as well. So it made me, and, and other people were arrested later on, but I don't think any of them were sent to the camps the way those folks were to the, the Lark Hill camp that it's called here. So it made me think that, that V had to be a minority, whether he was a racial minority or whether he was gay. And it seemed to me that his genius in picking Evie was because she was also not a minority, but clearly a second-class citizen because we see the structure of the society as things were happening, you know, in England when all this was going on, is that the situation for women is very much the way it is today, that women are second-class citizens in England as in the United States and most other Western countries. And only somebody else who had been discriminated against and treated that way could understand and would be open to, to his vision of what needed to happen, that you couldn't take a middle-class straight white guy off the street and expect him to understand how it feels to be powerless and how it feels to have that power wielded over you from birth. Um, clearly, a straight middle-class white guy would understand what it felt like to have the power taken away from you, but that's a really different thing than having it be that way for you for your whole life and knowing that you were never meant to have it in the first place. So I, I think that's why V picks Evie is because he knows that she will be someone who understands this having lived her life that way. And she's young enough that she's able to grow into this role that she hasn't really become 
so inured to it that she can't change. But I don't know about Dominic. I don't know if he's going to do this or whether he's going to think the way I would expect a person in his position to do, to think that he has to be the one to impose order on this. How can he believe in anarchy when order is what he's known his whole life and he's been part of that order? So I I think that's a really big question and I don't know if he's going to work out in the V organization (laughs) or not. Um, so that, that is kind of a question in my mind, and I don't think it's important that we know if V was black or Asian or gay or whatever, but I, I think it, it's an interesting question. Um, Evie is a really interesting character, and there were things about the book... Well, okay, so it starts off in the very first chapter with Evie almost getting raped. I mean, she's about to be raped before V rescues her. And, of course, my gut reaction to that is, oh, God, do we have to do this again? Show a woman who's about to be raped being rescued. That's my knee-jerk reaction, but I put that aside because I think Alan Moore doesn't do that kind of thing for shock value, and he doesn't do it because he's a lazy writer, and he doesn't do it because he thinks it's titillating, because it's not. He doesn't portray it that way. Um, I think he does it to show that Evie is part of a a class of people who are always going to be stepped on and abused because of who they are and not because of what they've done because she's a woman and you know who cares if she gets raped and killed she was trying to make money by hooking and of course she deserved it any woman does right that's the attitude of the society that he's forcing us to look at and that's carried along later in the book as well so he shows us the club um I'm I'm thinking it's the Kit Kat club because that's what it is in cabaret but it's not called that I don't have it in front of me right now but it's it's a place where um, the straight white guys go to be entertained, and it's, you know, like the Kit Kat Club in Cabaret, it's women in various stages of undress, um, you know, cavorting in a naughty way uh, for the pleasure of these men. And I, I think throughout we see that women have it really hard, that this is what they have to do. And then, of course, um, the the woman who who's the wife of the guy that gets killed, Almond, um, has to get a job there because she can't get a pension from the government and she has nothing else to do and she doesn't want to, you know, starve. So this is the only sort of employment that she can get. So I think the contrast between the way women have to live in this world and what Evie is doing is really, really strong because of that. So it's it seems pretty clear to me that Alan Moore is not saying this is the way it should be for women or this is how women should be treated. He's saying this sucks. And look, if it's, if you think it's bad to be a straight white guy in a society like this, look how bad it is if you're a woman. And I like that. I, I really appreciate that. And it's sometimes it's really hard to read uh, for me looking at it because it's, it's just so awful. And yet it's not that far removed from the way things are now. And, and I think that also is the genius of this book is that it is the not too distant future and it is not that far away from where we are now. It wouldn't take much to push a society into this kind of totalitarianism. It really wouldn't. I think that was the point of 1984, George Orwell's 1984, you know, and I don't want to bring, you know, what's the internet rule? Like, okay, now I'm going to mention the Nazis and Hitler, right? Um, but it's that, that is also the warning of a story like this is that it doesn't take much to push a society to be that restrictive for people and we need to be aware of that we always need to be watching out for that and that's you know 
I, I think that's what it's come to in America right now at the end of 2006 is that um, people got fed up because they let things go on and, and it was creeping towards a more centralized government control of everything. And people finally said, no, we can't do this anymore. We're not going to let this happen. And um, I, I thought a lot about V's point of view and what happens at the end of the book um, where he's explaining all this to Evie and saying, you know, there has to be chaos first where everything falls to pieces and then there's anarchy and then whatever order there is that rises out of it is an organic order that people make for themselves. And I guess that's true. Um, it's a shame that it has to be chaos first with people getting killed and presumably women and children and in peril, women getting raped and who knows what happens to the kids. It's not really mentioned. Um, but maybe that's necessary to, to build a new society, that there has to be some sort of wave of violence. You know, that really sucks. But I don't know. I'm, I'm not a historian, but I think historically, from what I can remember, it seems to be that way. Um, there is one other thing in here that really bothered me, and, and I want to just touch on it as a theme. And, and this is something that I see why he did it, but I don't like it. So throughout the book, and, and I think this is good, um, the guy who's the head of the government, and you know what? He's called the head, <laughs> the leader. He is uh, sitting, he's crazy, as we find out. He sits in a room and he looks at the computer all day. And it turns out he's in love with the computer because in his mind, um, the computer, fate, is like the woman that he's in love with. He thinks of her as a goddess. He thinks of her as uh, the the ultimate lover for him. And that's part of why he goes crazy because he feels, because as we find out later, V has access to the computer, has been sort of tricking him all along. So he feels betrayed. So the idea of the woman as the computer that he falls in love with, yeah, that's very interesting. And I like that. What I don't like is that in the beginning of um, one of these chapters, I'm just flipping to it now, chapter five, Versions. V has a little conversation with the Statue of Justice on top of the, the jail in London. And uh, he extends this metaphor of, of her justice being the woman that he's in love with. But he, he talks about how he's been in love with her and, oh, isn't she wonderful? I loved you as a person, as an ideal. There's someone else now. And, uh, he says, oh, but you betrayed me. You, he calls her names. It's terrible. He says, liar, slut, whore. Don't deny that you let him have his way with you, with his armbands and jackboots. That she doesn't, justice doesn't belong to him anymore. And he calls her, he says, she has taught me that justice is meaningless without freedom. She is honest. She makes no promises and breaks none. Unlike you, Jezebel. So his new mistress is anarchy. And he ends up blowing up this statue. And, you know, why do we have to resort back to the old trope of, you know, the unfaithful woman, the woman who cheats on you, who, who is now a slut and a whore and a harlot and a Jezebel and makes promises and therefore must be killed, that she was unfaithful to you, so now you have to kill her. You know, I understand why he did it, but I still don't think it's good to do that because it's just perpetrating the same old stereotype as the unfaithful woman. It's her fault. She's a slut because she slept with someone else, not because you were an asshole, but 
It's because of her. She's bad. A woman who has sex with more than one guy is bad. And therefore, you know, it's her fault. Everything is her fault. And it almost comes off that way, that it's her fault. And I, I just don't like that. That really rubs me the wrong way. And I was glad that he didn't continue having that be so vitriolic. But that passage really, really just got my, 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 uh, the hair on the back of my neck kind of stood up. And I didn't like that. I think he could have done it better. I think Alan Moore could have done that better because he is better than that. I think he's better than having to resort to a stereotype that's really, really old and tired and offensive. You know, he does such a good job with women the whole way, and then having to resort back to that just sucks. So that that's another complaint besides the lettering and the art. Um, so I, I can see why this was huge when it came out, because it is just great. And I think I mentioned when I was talking about Watchmen that if I had actually had to wait for each issue of Watchmen to come out, I would have been insane. <laughs> I think I would have felt the same for V for Vendetta. If I had wait all those years for this thing to come out, it would have driven me nuts. So it's so great that you can get it in a book now, and you can read it and have it all there and... Um, just see all the wonderfulness of this. You know, I'm flipping through it right now, and as much as I don't like the art, I like the coloring a lot. The coloring is just so interesting. You know, it, it's done in such um, dreary colors for the most part, and I think that's totally appropriate. And it's got these beautiful washes of color when they're supposed to be in uh, the nightclub. It really looks like the interior... The coloring looks like the weird, strange colors in the, in the interior of a nightclub. And you never really see anything in natural lighting anywhere throughout the whole book. It's as if natural lighting has ceased to exist. And I, I think that that's a, a wonderful commentary. So, yeah, I definitely dig the art here. Um, I'm also going to say that I did a little experiment. Um, if you remember, one of the key things that happens in the book is that um, there's a note from a woman named Valerie that it turns out that V had gotten while he was in Lark Hill, and it was her life story. She was in prison next to him. She was in room four, and he was in room five, hence the V. And um, this was the story of her life that she had written in pencil on a piece of toilet paper. Now, the interesting thing is, I tried to write in pencil on a piece of toilet paper, and it really didn't work. It basically ripped big holes in it. So then I, I decided to be like Mythbusters and take it one step further. And I started to write on different things thinking well the toilet paper that they had probably wasn't like the Charmin that you buy in the store and it turns out you can actually write in pencil on like a piece of really crappy paper towel the kind that you might find in a Catholic school (laughs) the cheapest kind of stuff that has like wood fiber in it and yes you can write on that with a pencil so that actually makes sense to me. But you can't write on a piece of Charmin with a pencil. It just doesn't work. Um, Let's see. Oh, one other thing that was slightly questionable in here was, um, you know, when Evie goes to live with the gangster, Gordon, and they end up sleeping together, she's still only 15. (laughs) Really? That's a little weird, don't you think? Well, I guess that was she had to do what she had to do, but she's still only 15. She seems to have aged a lot. Like, I kind of wondered whether um, David Lloyd forgot how old she was supposed to be from the first chapter to, like, the third chapter, because all of a sudden she looks ten years older. In fact, the way he draws her in the nightclub, again, not being consistent from the first chapter, where she really does look like 15, she looks like she's 27. 
She's dressed like it. Her body language is all about being an older woman. The comments that she makes are much older than her. So I think maybe he had a, a brain lapse and forgot that she was supposed to be 15. <laughs> so anyway, so I'm kind of anxious to watch the movie. I know that the movie is different, and I know that Alan Moore disowned the movie, um, as he has done with other adaptations of his work. But I'm I'm just curious to see. Now, I have to say up front that um, I hate Natalie Portman. I think she's a terrible actress and mostly actor. I think that's mostly because I thought she was just awful in the Star Wars movies. And frankly, I think I've only seen her in one other thing. So that's my own personal prejudice. And I know lots of guys have a hard-on for her, um, which I just don't get because um, she seems pretty much like a mannequin to me. So I don't get like a sexy vibe off of her at all um, the way I do with other women like... Um, Jane Lynch (laughs) was just so incredibly sexy. She was on Boston Legal. She's been in all those Christopher Guest movies. You know, like, there's a woman who exudes a vibe. To me, Natalie Portman gives off absolutely no vibe whatsoever. So I can't agree with her as a sex object. But uh, I want to see what happens. Um, I was, when I was looking for uh, this audio of this vicious cabaret, which I actually had to do by getting a clip from YouTube and recording the audio off of it because I couldn't find it anywhere else, um, there were scenes from the movie and it looked really like, of course, things that are not in the book at all. And I understand that, you know, they tried to update it to make it more about the current, um, Bush, uh, totalitarian regime here in the United States. So we'll see. But, uh, I, I want to see what that's all about, but I'm really curious to hear what other people have to say about V for Vendetta. Um, it's pretty awesome. You know, I, I was also thinking about the Englishness of it and the whole Guy Fawkes thing, which Americans don't really know about. I mean, I only know a little bit about it, so I had to go and do some research. And um, it is a very powerful anarchic symbol, I think, which is probably much more meaningful to English people. I think to Americans, to me, when I see V dressed up in this costume, I get that he's supposed to be a character out of history and that um, the mask is representative, but I don't get like the personal resonance for me. So I'm sure that this story and the iconography of it was much, much more powerful to English people than it would be to anybody else who lives outside of England. And the mask is creepy, you know? Um, I wonder why it's like that. Why is he smiling? I mean, the guy Fox mask, why is he smiling? I'm not quite sure. But it's it's totally appropriate for this. Okie dokie, then. Um, let me just round off with a few things by saying keep watching those Christmas cartoons. Um, I want to say hi to all the people on the um, Pilkipedia forums that I just started posting at. Yeah, it's really me. <laughs> Don't doubt that for a minute. It is really me. So thanks for listening to the show. Um, do all your Christmas shopping at Comic Relief in Berkeley, the only comic book store that matters, because they have everything that you could ever want. And if you're like me, when I buy Christmas gifts, I kind of like buy five things for other people, and then I buy two for myself. And that's pretty much the way it is at Comic Relief. There's just so much. How could you not do it? Um, and you should definitely be going over to Ginger Mayerson's site and downloading some of her fabulous music, because it is just so very good. So I think that's going to do it for now. As I said, the next show, there's going to be, oh, a little bit of rantiness because there are some things to rant about. And I know um, some people have been actually complaining because of the lack of rants. But what can I say? Things have been good. (laughs) So if I don't have another podcast, uh, I hope you all have a wonderful holiday. Even as an atheist, I celebrate Christmas because um, 
my family enjoys it and my friends enjoy it. And I just like giving presents to people. I think it's a good thing to do. So, you know, let's be like hobbits and give out presents at every opportunity because that kind of karma definitely comes back. They say that there's a broken life for every heart on Broadway. They say that life's a game and then they take the board away. They give you masks and costumes and an outline of the story. Then leave you all to improvise their vicious cabaret. In no longer pretty cities, there are fingers in the kitties. There are wands, forms and chitties and the jackboots on the stair. Sex and death and human grime in monochrome. For one thing down, at least the trains are run on time. They don't go anywhere. Responsibilities either on their backs or on their knees. There are ladies who just simply freeze and dare not turn away. And the widows that refuse to cry, be dressed in garter and bow tie, be taught to keep their legs up high in this vicious cabaret. At last, the 1998 show, the ballet on the burning stage. The documentary scene upon the fractured screen, the dreadful bones crawl upon the front of page.